you know, it struck me this morning, maybe particularly this week, um, and this is not in my notes, <laughs> uh, how integrated this service is. You know, typically we meet a lot, we talk a lot, we plan a lot, I send them my notes and all that kind of stuff, and so we, we seek to do this. And this has just been one of those kind of weeks where, you know, we canceled our meetings and didn't get to chat and, and all that stuff. And what's encouraging to me is um, to see that the Spirit has integrated it uh, sort of in our absence, and, uh, and really that's kind of cool. What was striking to me is how many of the songs that we sang um, deal with the end of all things. And the reason that struck me is that when we get to the end of the story that we're going to study today, that's what Jesus is going to call us to consider. So he's going to get to the end, and here's the punchline. He's going to say, and yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What is he saying? He's saying wisdom is justified by what she produces, the fully mature product of what she produces. And there is a wisdom of God, and there is a wisdom of this world, and the wisdom of God to the world looks like foolishness, does it not? And so therefore then we look like fools at times. We do things that don't make sense in the eyes of the people of this world. We say things that seem ridiculous in the eyes of the people of this world. It's a foolishness to our life, but he's coming to us and he's saying, but wait a minute, the time to pull out your measuring stick is not now. It's in the end. But we don't tend to do that. You know, we tend to take a look at our life and something tragic or whatever happens in our life. And when do we measure God's faithfulness? Now. (laughs) When do we measure his goodness? Now. When do we measure his wisdom? Now. When do we measure his love? Now. When do we measure his presence in our life? Now. We measure it all now. It's like we can't resist. Right now, we're going to make the call. That's it. You're not God. You're not faithful. You're not good. You don't love me. And he's going, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Time out. I told you in advance, wisdom is justified by all of her children. You will not be disappointed by me in the end. And the time to, to judge is then. Something to think about. We continue today in our study of the life of that Jesus who gives us that wisdom, and we'll hear it again when we're done, as it's given to us in the Gospel of Luke. And today we come to Luke's final story about John the Baptist, a guy who needs to learn this, surprisingly enough. And it was curious, like for me, I got to this story this week, and I thought to myself, really, after I read it, I thought, well, you know, finally a story about John the Baptist that I feel like I can actually relate to, because prior to this story, I feel like John was incapable of making a mistake, and yet in this story, major blunder. Before I got to this story, I looked at John, and I'm thinking, his faith is like the rock of Gibraltar, man. This dude is granite. He is amazing. Is there like anyone like him? I mean, Jesus will even speak to that. And yet it's shaken to the core. Bottom line today, John the Baptist will doubt Jesus. And it won't just be like a little private inner thought that he has, you know? He's not just going to take counsel with himself and his own mind and heart and work through his doubts with Jesus. He's going to publicly, as we'll see, express his doubt regarding Jesus. So bottom line, John doubts. And bottom line, for John, for us, the message of Jesus is this. It's, you know what, guys? Don't doubt. Now's not the time to measure. (laughs) Now's not the time to judge. Don't doubt me. But please notice how gracious he is to John in his doubt. And listen to his words of affirmation because it's like medicine for the fellow doubters of John, and that's, 
That's all of us. So we pick up our study today in Luke 7, beginning in verse 18, where we read this. We read that the disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him. And you're like, okay, Tom, no, we're just getting going, but time out, question number one. Here's the question. What are these things that the disciples of John the Baptist went to John and reported to John? And I'm going to tell you, these things are massively important. They help you to understand what happens with John in this story. And what I think Luke is referring to specifically here are the two stories that lead up to John's doubt. So John hears the reports, for example, that Jesus has shown kindness and publicly affirmed the faith of a Gentile Roman centurion, not just a Gentile Roman soldier, but a commander of soldiers, and he did this and he healed the servant of this man. says, this guy has greater faith than, well, look around, pretty much anybody. It's amazing. And then he heard how Jesus also had raised a man from the dead. Keep those things in mind, because that's what was in John's mind. So again, we read that the disciples of John the Baptist came and reported these things to John. And then John, with these two things rattling around in his heart and mind, what? Calling two of his disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord. And you say, all right, sorry, time out. I know this is rude, but interruption number two, question number two. Why doesn't John just go himself? Why does he have to send his disciples? Is John too busy? Is John too important? Is John disabled? I mean, what's the deal? John is in prison awaiting execution by means of beheading for calling out the sin, and this is really significant, of one of the tyrannous and villainous leaders who rule over a part of Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire. And who, together with all of the other tyrannous and villainous leaders who ruled over other parts of the nation of Israel made life for the Jews really miserable. So now we read again that the disciples of John the Baptist, who is in prison awaiting execution, reported all these things that Jesus was doing, including the healing of a Gentile, Roman centurion servant, and the raising of a man from the dead to John. And then John, with those two stories rattling around in his heart and mind, calling two of his disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord, saying, and here's his message, are you the one who is to come? Translation, are you really the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior of the world, or shall we instead look for another? So there it is. And coming out of the mouth of John the Baptist, man, that is absolutely, at least at first blush, shocking. It's like, what? Where did that come from? This is John the Baptist. This is the relative of Jesus, remember? I mean, what are they, like third cousins? I don't know. But he's not only the relative of Jesus. This is John the Baptist, whose supernatural conception, like that of the Lord, it was supernaturally enabled, was also supernaturally announced and advanced by the exact same angel Gabriel, who six months later appeared to Mary, the mother of Christ, to tell her that she would then supernaturally conceive Jesus. This is John the Baptist, whose entire life and ministry was prophesied together with that of Jesus, alongside of Jesus, and completely integrated, not just by Luke, but by God himself. This is John the Baptist, who in utero, while in his mother's womb, leapt for joy when Mary, with Jesus in her womb, entered into their house, and he heard her voice. This is John the Baptist, whose ministry was massive and huge, who baptized thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who came out into the wilderness, which was no small task, incidentally, to come submit to his baptism of repentance. 
This is John the Baptist, who at that Jordan River, in front of those many thousands, when Jesus came walking by, identified Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world. This is John the Baptist, who baptized Christ himself. And then, immediately thereafter, personally witnessed the heavens parting. Personally heard the voice of Almighty God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Personally saw the Spirit of God in bodily form descending upon Jesus like a dove. So with that in mind, I'm going to read it again. The disciples of John the Baptist who's in prison awaiting execution. You hear that? Reported all these things that Jesus was doing, including the healing of a Gentile Roman centurion servant. Oh, and also the raising of a man from the dead to John. And then John, with those two things rattling around in his heart and mind, called two of his disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? Are you really the Savior of the world? Or shall we instead look for another? And so then, when these men that John sent had come to Jesus, they said, and incidentally, they said this again publicly, Now picture that for a minute. Imagine the hurt of that to Jesus. This is John. This is his relative. This is this guy who's intertwined with him completely by the Lord. I mean, good grief. Really? And publicly. This is embarrassing. This is humiliating. This is the doubt, not of Joe Blow that happened to be a relative of Jesus. This is the doubt of John the Baptist, who is famous in Israel, who everybody reveres and listens to. His ministry was, again, massive. Believe it or not, there is still to this day very few, but some who would claim still to be followers of John the Baptist. This is a credible voice, at least in the eyes in the minds, in the ears, and the hearts of this people. And these guys show up publicly and they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we just look for another? And you say, All right, sorry, time out. Another interruption. Question number three. Um, what? Why did John do that? And I think the answer to that is actually very simple. I think that John the Baptist did this for the same reason that you and I do this. <laughs> and we do it pretty regularly. John doubted Jesus because Jesus was not behaving the way that John had expected that Jesus would behave. And as a result, it was personally very costly to John because here's what John expected. John expected that Jesus, among other things, was going to lead some kind of a geopolitical revolution by which he would militarily throw off Rome and run off all of these tyrannous and villainous leaders and crown himself with an earthly crown and do what else? Somewhere in the process, he's going to come free his buddy from jail, is he not? I mean, he's John the Baptist and rescue his life. But it is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer as John is receiving all of these reports about Jesus that, you know, Jesus is not really organizing his army. Jesus is not making any kind of, you know, military plans. 
Whatever dreaming and scheming Jesus is doing, it doesn't seem at least to have anything whatsoever to do with that. And now John, who's awaiting execution in prison, gets this story about how Jesus affirms the faith of and heals the servant of what in John's mind is, is exactly the kind of person we ought to at least at some point start running off. A Roman centurion? What in the world? Oh, what else? Yeah, well, he raised somebody from the dead. But the Roman centurion? Are you serious? So one counselor friend of mine told me one time, he said, unmet expectations lead to anger. And we experience that, don't we? We experience that in relationship to one another, you know, unmet expectations lead to anger. And listen, sometimes the problem is with the expectations, as it is with John, as we'll see. Sometimes the expectations are not stated, and you say, yeah, but you know what, he really ought to be able to figure this out, and maybe he should, but apparently he hasn't, so help him out. Sometimes the expectations are unreasonable, that's just something I can't do, but that's not the issue with Jesus, is it? It's not. He could do that. Sometimes they just go unmet. Unmet expectations lead to anger, but as we're learning in this story as well, they also lead to doubt. And we experience that as well. We've seen that. A promise broken, 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 a promise broken. Yeah, you made me another promise. Now listen, I'm not crossing my fingers and I'm not changing my plans at some point. They lead to doubt. And in this case, they lead to doubt of Jesus. And again, notice what he's doubting, because he's not doubting Jesus' ability. He's not doubting his power. He's not saying, I don't think you could do this. Listen, Jesus is incredibly attractive as a military Messiah. My goodness, guys, he raises the dead. Like, you know, who can defeat an army of that man? Well, Jesus, we had 32,000 casualties on the battlefront. No, we did not. You know? We're running out of food up there for the troops. Well, what do you got? We got three falafels and, and, and we've got a shawarma. All right. Break them up. Divide them up. It'll be good. Go for the shawarma, by the way. Just trust me on that one. He's undefeatable. He's not doubting his wisdom. He's not doubting his goodness. He's not doubting his knowledge of John's situation. Jesus is obviously aware of his situation. He's not doubting his love. We doubt all of those things. And today, as opposed to in the end. And he's saying, no, 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 that's when you decide. And it won't be difficult. John is doubting who Jesus is. He's saying, are you really the person that I thought that you were? And I think we do that too. So now notice how Jesus handles this and consider how gracious it is and affirming it is in light of the fact that, man, this is hurtful and it's embarrassing for Jesus. Verse 21, Luke says that in that hour, meaning in the hour in which these guys show up with this question from John, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he restored sight. And so in other words, Jesus doesn't just immediately address their question. He says, oh, you want to know who I am? All right, let's spend some time together. Watch what I do. Listen to what I say. And then, he says in so many words, compare that 
to what was prophesied about the true Messiah, as it turns out, because he'll quote from this, in the book of Isaiah. 750 years, John, before either of us were born, Isaiah sort of gave us a list, and Jesus will take them to the list. And so again, in that hour that these guys show up with this question, Jesus says, all right, I'll answer it in a minute, but first, follow me around. And he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then Jesus answered them, and in his answer, he does something very significant. He plucks two verses out of the book of Isaiah, so Isaiah 35, 5, and most particularly, Isaiah 61, 1, and he brings them together, and he knows that John knows that these verses speak about what the true Messiah would do. They kind of give you a list. And so as we'll see here in a minute, he starts just working through the list, and you can just tick them off one at a time, except there's something very significant, at least from the perspective of John, missing from the list, and intentionally so. And in its place, Jesus substitutes something else. And so he says to these guys, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And then he begins to give us the list. He says, the blind receive their sight. Okay, so you're working through the list. You're like, check. The lame walk, check. The lepers are cleansed, check. And the deaf hear, check. And then here's what you would expect to hear next. You would then expect to hear, and liberty is proclaimed to the captives, and the prison is opened to those who are bound. So again, what is John in this moment in history? He's captive. Where, where is he? He's bound and in prison. Believe you me, when Jesus left that off the list, he noticed. It's the one he's waiting for. It's the one he's looking for. And now notice what Jesus puts in its place. He says, and the dead are raised up. Hmm, not what I was hoping to hear if I'm John. What an amazing message. And the dead are raised up, and oh, by the way, John, you know that, because you got two reports most recently, didn't you? It wasn't just about the centurion guy, but his faith and the servant and whatnot. It was cool, not going to lie, that was a great story. But did you happen to notice the dead man being raised up story? So we're just working through the list, and Jesus leaves out the one John wants to hear, and he replaces it with the dead are raised up, and then he completes the list with the poor have good news, preach to them, check, and then Jesus closes with a line that absolutely sticks a dagger into the heart of every doubter, including John, because it's a rebuke of our doubt. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying, blessed is the one who does not doubt me simply because I do not behave the way that he or she expected that I would, even, as in John's case, when it costs you your life. That has to be the way that John hears this. He must have walked away from this thing going, ooh, well, um, hmm, I guess this means that I'm going to die here. And I'm not going to lie, I wasn't hoping for that. But it also means that, that that too is not even enough to drive me to doubt and why. And don't measure your life now. Measure it in the end of all things. Jesus has promised to raise me from the dead. John knows that now. 
And look, he's already given him a very recent example of his ability to do exactly that. And so then I think that what Jesus is saying to John, and by extension to the rest of us, is, you know, guys, you know, you can be confused, and, and you will be. You can be perplexed, and it'll happen. You can be hurt by the way that I operate in your life at times. You can ask me why. I think that's fair game. Jesus asks why, in some sense, from the cross. But he's saying, and I think very kindly, but don't doubt me. Don't do that. And when you're tempted, let's spend some time together. In fact, the time to spend time together is before you're tempted, frankly. And I think spending time together, among other things, means prayerfully and passionately digging deeply into God's Word that we might come to understand who Jesus really is as opposed to who we would assume that He would be. There's expectations in that that get clarified, you see, and then they're not so easily broken. And what Jesus is really like as opposed to, well, surely He's like, really? Maybe. But what does the Word say? What His plans and purposes for me and for you and for everything and everyone else actually are as opposed to what we want them to be or assume them to be. And then we can set our expectations accordingly, one after the next, after the next, after the next, as we get to know Him, His heart, His plans, His purposes, His values, His passions, and His eternal perspective on all things better and better and better and better as we walk together with Him by His Word and by His Spirit and in community with one another. And when that happens, you see, we'll find Him far less disappointing and we'll find life far more hopeful for blessed really is the one who is not offended by Jesus. But here's the deal. We've all been offended by Jesus. He's let us down or so we think. And so then now notice how Jesus handles John because he doesn't just throw him out. Huge insult notwithstanding, Jesus receives John's insult and he returns a blessing. It's really something. Luke says, beginning in verse 24, that when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John and he doesn't castigate him, he doesn't tear him down, he doesn't try to minimize him because, you know, that would be a good PR move to do. This isn't politics. This is truth. And he challenges them and he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? The idea being when you all went out to see John at the height of his ministry and when he was baptizing people in that baptism of repentance down by the Jordan. And then he says, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? And here's what he's saying. The deal is with these reeds, they're everywhere in the land of Israel. You want to see a reed? Look out your window. Walk out your door. It's as common as sand, so to speak. You don't have to travel to go see a reed. You certainly don't have to endure great discomfort and possible peril to go see a reed. You don't have to go out into the wilderness, the point being, to see something as common as that. No, you went out to see someone terrifically uncommon. Really, really awesome. And so then he says a second time, what then did you go out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, Jesus says, look, he's saying, Those who are dressed in soft and splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. You don't find them in the wilderness. So then what did you go out into the wilderness to see, he asks a third time, and now he gives them an answer. 
He says, a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. In fact, this is he of whom it is written in the Scriptures, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. I tell you, Jesus says, now notice the statement, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And incidentally, he says that on the backside of John's doubt. While the sting of the doubt is still something he's experiencing. It's quite remarkable. And then he adds this. He says, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater, at least in some sense, that's my addition, than John. And you say, all right, well, question number four. Huh? Like, what is that? Why is that? Because John will lose his head in that prison. And as a result, John will die before the sufferings of Jesus, before the crucifixion and death of Jesus, before the burial of Jesus, and before the third day resurrection from the dead of Jesus. And so then, at least in this life, John will not completely and fully understand the fact that the true mission of the true Messiah, who truly is Jesus, is not to set captives free from Rome. That's far too puny but to set captives free from sin. It's not to set people you know, free from the prisons of Rome, but from the prison of death. And what he's saying is that those of us who live on this side of the cross have, by God's grace, that greater understanding. And so then in that sense, well, even the least of us is greater than John the Baptist. And so then when all the people heard this statement by Jesus about John and how he affirmed him and all that, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, meaning they just said, Amen, you're right. Having themselves been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, here we go, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Not having been baptized by John is the idea. And so then here's what Jesus says to them. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. We played a happy song, a joyful song for you. And you didn't dance. And, you, and we sang a dirge for you. We sang a sorrowful song. And you did not weep. In other words, we've done everything we can to try to move your hearts, but good grief, they're like stone. You're immovable. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say that he has a demon. And the Son of Man, Jesus says about himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, well, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he concludes with this punchline. He says, you guys have your wisdom. I have my wisdom. Let me tell you how this plays out. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. By what she produces, by the fully mature product. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. It's kind of his way of saying, well, we'll see how it plays out in the end and little advance notice. Guys, you, you don't have it right. Now, it may look like you have it right now, if you want to judge now, <laughs> but no. In the end, 
the Lord's wisdom will prevail. And here's our punchline, so will we, for we're his people. And until then, it's our duty to trust Jesus, even, and maybe even most particularly, when he behaves in ways that we did not expect, that we do not understand, and frankly, that are painful and costly. And to remember that blessed is the one who is not offended by him. And who doesn't want in on that deal? I thought about that. I thought, well, if we set a sign-up sheet out in the back, you know, and be blessed by God, you know, just put your name on the list. I mean, I'd just call the service now, you know, or maybe what I'd do is I'd pray and then I'd quietly walk down so I could sign up first. I mean, who wouldn't sign up? Seriously. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Christ. So I'm going to ask you two questions and then we're done. How, number one, how has the Lord offended you by behaving in ways that you really didn't expect and that have been personally very costly to you? That's the easy one. You do, typically, you don't have to work too hard to figure out the answer to that. But, but number two, this is the more challenging one, is what have your unmet expectations driven you to? Have they driven you to be angry with Jesus? Have they driven you to doubt Jesus? Or have they instead driven you to Jesus? To spend time with Him, to dig deeply into His Word and to discover by faith who He really is, what He's really like, what His plans and purposes actually are, and to come to grips with the reality that this life is not the only life that there is, that the time to judge His faithfulness is not today. It's the last day. And that on that last day, you will not be disappointed. Indeed, you will be blessed. So go to the Word and get to know the Lord, and then you'll find Him far less disappointing and life far more hopeful. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this great and good man who is John the Baptist. We thank You for all the stories and the wonderful way that You have woven them into Your gospel stories and into the life of the Lord Jesus Himself. We thank You, Lord, for His many great successes and the powerful ways that by Your Spirit You accomplished Your purposes in and through Him. And we thank You, God, too, for this last story, it seems, at least in Luke, about John. Because we can relate to this one. We thank You even for His doubt, knowing that it is sin, but it's redeemed when it challenges our doubts and calls us to rise above the fray of the day and to consider the one who is the master of life and death, who has promised that indeed he will raise us from the dead, whose promises extend beyond this life into one that is eternal and who on the last day will completely fulfill and thereafter for all of eternity fulfill in ever-increasing measure every single promise and blessing that he has ever uttered and innumerable additional ones that even now our minds are not capacious enough to imagine. Call us to believe and to trust and to know and to follow that Jesus and let us know that blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.